Um, 19 years later, I go to Bible college and I meet um, Adam Harold, or it was 18 years when I met him, 19 when I married him. Um, so he, the next day, we, he whisked me away. We moved to Michigan um, and started our life together. I cried for weeks um, because I left the city and I was stuck in the middle of nowhere and I was stuck with a boy. Um, and boys are amazing, but um, boys are icky sometimes. But um, so I was just, it was a really rough transition for me. Um, but I will say that was one of the best things that happened to us was moving far away right after we got married. Um, my mom will deny that um, when she's listening later. But what that did was that forced us to work out our differences um, together. Because what happens is so many times, and I'm not knocking people who live next door to their parents, but so many times you can come to a disagreement and run home and complain to mom. Or he could go and talk to his dad about it. But we had no choice. So we had to stay there and fight. Um, so sometimes um, sometimes it was blissful. Sometimes they were just knocked down, drag out fights. And I will take... Um, the blame for most of those fights as being the, the stubborn one in the relationship. But I'm not that stubborn because he finally whittled me down to speaking to you guys today. And so um, just the whole premise of what kind of brought me around full circle to agreeing to speak is um, a verse that God just dropped into my lap. It's funny, um, a lot of times when you are um, dealing with something and you'll be reading in your Bible or talking to somebody and maybe you'll hear a song and it's like God answered um, a question that you weren't even asking him. And so this is what happened to me when I, when I came across this verse. Um, it's Ephesians 3, 7 through 8, and it says, By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all of God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. So when I came across that verse, I was like, all right, message received. So um, I am the least deserving to be up here. Um, Bible college didn't really work out for me. Um, after my freshman year, I didn't really even get to the end of the freshman year. Um, I just kind of developed this rebellious spirit, and that's not really the person I am. Um, so my, my freshman year of Bible college, I spent going to um, scary movies and sneaking out to Dave Matthews concerts. And none of that was allowed, so I kind of, um, that that wasn't the school's fault, that was just a symptom of me not being in the right place. So um, I left Bible college and later went back to school as an adult to get my um, RN and worked for several years um, as a registered nurse in the OR and um, in orthopedics, but I am so um, just thrilled and happy to be doing what I know I was created to do, um, and that's serving you guys here and serving our local church. So the, the message today that we're going to talk about, the way that my brain works, um, kind of having that science education background, I want to know more. So when a lot of times when you'll hear a message in church, I'm, my mind is wandering because I want to know, like, what's the culture like for these people? They, there's so many, like, small nuances that we don't get because we weren't part of that culture. So there might be things that they had said um, that the people understood because it was their culture, but we don't get as the reader. And so I just want to lay some foundation um, for us as before we get right into the text of just what's happening in the lives of these people, the Israelites, um, before we get to where we're going to be hanging out in Judges. So the book of Judges is what we're going to be talking about today, but prior to Judges is the book of Joshua. And what's happening in Joshua is that the Israelites had made it into the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua, and um, God had told them that they needed to drive out the Canaanites. So the Canaanites were just this wicked people. They had lived in the Promised Land, so God brought 
them in there under the um, agreement that they were going to drive out these Canaanites so they wouldn't become influenced by them. Um, so uh, Joshua 24, 19 through 24, Joshua is charging the people to make sure that they're going to be following God, that they're not going to be influenced by these Canaanites. So this is how this um, sounds. Joshua 24, 19 through 24. Then Joshua warned the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is holy and a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you, even though he's been so good to you. But the people answered Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. You're a witness to your own decision, Joshua said. You have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they replied, we are witnesses to what we have said. All right, then, Joshua said, destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. Have you guys ever had conversations with your kids and you're like, this is not going to be what you think it's going to be? My son, he thinks that eating right now is like a challenge, like a game to him. And so he's always asking to get the double baconator. Is that the name of the burger that he gets? Um, Sometimes he gets. And so he's always like, Mom, I want the double baconator. And it's like, dude. You don't, it's not going to be pretty because either you're going to finish it and this is going to be like what you think Burger King is like for us, or later I'm going to hear like, oh, I feel so bad, like my stomach hurts. So you're trying to warn them. You're like, listen, I know how this is going to go. It's not going to work out for you. So that's what Joshua is doing to the, to the people. They're like, no, we're going to serve God. He's saying, listen, like I know this is going to be tough. But three times in this context, um, the Israelites are telling Joshua that they're going to serve God. So then we get to the book of Judges, and Joshua dies. So the leader is gone, and the whole book is about the total failure of Israel. Uh, The book of Judges is named for the leaders of Israel at that time, so they weren't ruled by kings. Um, They were ruled by judges, and these weren't like a civil judge like you think of. Um, These were judges that were more um, military and political judges. Um, It's a really violent and disturbing book. Um, There's a lot of blood. And so, of course, I picked one of the bloodiest stories to talk about when we say fight like a girl. I'm, I'm really excited about this story, actually. But what's funny is um, we've got some children's books here at the church, uh, children's Bibles. So I grabbed one last week, and I was like, i got to hook the judges and see. Like, they put everything in there. I will say that they didn't draw pictures for all the things, but the kids' books, the kids' Bibles, even include all the stuff of judges. So if you guys want to see the G-rated version, you can read in uh, one of our kids' books and not have... Um, the, the photos to go with it. Um, but what we're going to be talking about is one of the gnarliest stories, I believe, in Judges. Um, so the whole overlay of the, of the, the book, um, chapters 1 through 2, is just talking about Israel's failure to drive out the Canaanites. This was their deal, that they were going into this promised land, flowing with milk and honey, but they had to get, get rid of these Canaanite people. Uh, the Canaanites were really morally corrupt. They practiced child sacrifice. They had idols. They worshipped false gods. And they just really had no morals. So it was not a people that God wanted his chosen people, the Israelites, to be around. Chapter 2 is where Israel's downward spiral begins. And so we're going to check out a slide here that shows the downward spiral of Israel. And so it starts with sin. And what happens after sin is that God releases his hand of protection on the Israelites and allows them to be conquered. After they're conquered, they get sick of being conquered and um, just oppressed by leadership. And so they repent, and God sends a deliverer. In the book of Judges, the deliverer comes in the form of a judge. But we know today that this cycle continues for us, and the deliverer for us has already come, and that's through Jesus Christ. 
And so after they um, submit to the, the leadership of their deliverer, then there's peace in the land. Peace stays for a while, and then they jack it all up, and the cycle begins again, and we go back into sin. And so that is exactly what happens in our life, isn't it? That we sin, we mess up, and then we have consequences of that sin. And then we really just get down and, and realize what our sin did, and so we repent. And God has already sent the deliverer for us, like I said, through Jesus Christ. And so when we accept that gift, that forgiveness for the sins that we have done, um, then there's peace. And so, but then we're human, right? So we're flawed, and we jack it up, and we go right back around to that cycle again. So that's happening in Israel, and that's happening today in our lives. So that's all. Chapter 2 is just the beginning. That's not the end of the downward spiral, but that's where we see it start. Chapters 3 through 16 is talking about the corruption now goes up to Israel's judges. Okay, so the leadership begins to be influenced by the people that have already been influenced by the Canaanites. So you see this kind of ripple effect of bad influence. Have you guys ever heard the saying that it's easier to pull somebody down than it is to pull somebody up? That's exactly what's happening here in Judges. And so the the judge that we're going to be talking about today is um, Deborah. And so she's one of the first of the judges. The first three judges, they're good judges. They do good. Um, And then as, as the book progresses, we get more into corrupt judges. So um, the first three judges in the book of Judges, how many times can I say Judges today, um, is Othniel, Ahud, and Deborah. So what we're going to be camping out is um, on Deborah's life and just kind of the things that she has done through God. Once you get beyond that story, um, chapter 17 through 21 is just where it all hits the fan. It is really, there's terrible things that happen. Um, As the judges decrease in moral character, the Israelites have already blown it. Um, and so it's really disturbing, and I suggest you guys check it out later. Um, and then uh, what we're going to be doing today, though, is we're going to be talking about Judges 4 and 5. So this, this goes together, not because I'm reading two chapters today, don't worry about it. But what happens is there's a story that happens in Chapter 4, and then there's a song about the story in Chapter 5. So we're going to get right into it. I tried to kind of like try to figure out how to slim this down so you guys can totally see me out. But this story is so rich, I don't want you guys to tune me out. So we're just going to plow through this together, and I'm going to read for us Judges chapter 4. So we're going to start in verse 1. After Ahab's death, remember he was the previous judge. After Ahab's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, the Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Tavoyim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. So this is the cycle, right? This is where the cycle begins. The people again did evil in the Lord's sight, and so God turned them over to Jabin. Um, So we're going to continue here in verse 4. Deborah, the wife of Lapido, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. On a day, she, one day she sent for Barak, son of Abinuam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. And she said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. 
Very well, she replied. I will go with you, but you will receive no honor for this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hand of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, and at Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with them, and Deborah also went with them. So I don't want you guys to get so lost in all the names and the places and the difficult to pronounce names that I have been practicing all week. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of break it down what's happening here as we chunk away at this chapter. So there are four characters that we were just introduced to that I want you guys to hone in on. So if you think of it in terms of like good guys and bad guys, our bad guys here are uh, Jabin. This is the Canaanite king. Sisera is Jabin's commander. So he is um, Jabin's number two. Then the good guys or good girls are Deborah, which is Israel's judge and prophetess. And then Barak, that's Israel's commander. He's Deborah's number two. We're going to skip down to verse 15 and get right into the good stuff. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariot warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Hereseth to Goyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir, come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. So here we were just introduced to two more characters, Jael, who is a tent-dwelling woman, and her husband Heber, who is a Kenite. Um, The Kenites are a nomadic people. Um, They traveled all throughout the hillside. Um, They were coppersmiths and metal workers, um, and they were actually descendants of Moses' in-laws. So they have an alliance with Israel all through their common ancestor Moses. Verse 19 says, Please give me some water. Um, He said, I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you if anyone's in here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up on him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. And she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and so he died. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come in, I will show you the man who you're looking for. Like, I hear some pride in that. Um, so he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with a tent peg through his temple. That is amazing, right? So this, this girl, like, knew how to work a tent peg. So there are a couple characteristics that we're going to um, be focusing on between Deborah and J.L. And so the first characteristic is one that I know that is within all of you, but sometimes you guys forget this. So my job here as the speaker this morning is to call this out of you. And the first characteristic that we all possess and sometimes forget is grit. Grit. Grit is courage and resolve. Deborah had grit. She was the only prophetess and judge in all of the Bible. She, um, she was the only judge in all of the Bible. The only other prophet and judge was Samuel. So she was in the life of some amazing people. She was the one that, through God speaking to her as a prophetess, called Barak into battle. Verse 6 says that she told him, like, all right, guys, on, like, let's go to battle. We're going to take these people out because God has told us that we need to do this. So what does Barak say, though? He wants her to go with him. So battle, I mean, this is the same as today, but battle is not something that you just kind of, like, casually, like, 
you want to go for ice cream? Sure, like, let's go. Like, going to battle, like, this is serious stuff. And she doesn't even flinch. She says, that's fine, I'll go with you, but the victory won't be yours. The victory is going to be in the Lord. Because she's willing to go to battle. That takes grit, don't you agree? Jael had grit as well. Obvious reasons here, but one thing that we didn't get, but I, I learned through studying and just the context of the culture, is that the tent-dwelling people, the women's responsibility was setting up the tent. So um, I had gone camping um, last summer, and I went with a friend who knew how to work a tent. I did not know how to work a tent, so I was just kind of like, you tell me what to do, and we're going to make it happen. Had I been camping on my own, um, we would have been sleeping in some really low overhangs. But um, this girl, this is her job, JL. She sets up the tent. Like, this is what homemaking really is. So she knew how to work this tent peg. She takes this tent peg and drives it through Sisera's skull into the ground. And so when you think about, like, I try to visualize these things happening when I'm reading the Bible. So you're, you're thinking, you know, he's laying down. She's got his head on the pillow. She tucks him in, like, snug as a bug in a rug. He asks for a drink. She gives him milk. It's just like our kids, like, 40 times back and forth. We finally get them to sleep, right? But what's exposed here? It even says it in the Bible that she uh, drew, uh, drove the tent peg through his temple. So the, the nurse in me comes out, and I'm like, all right, how much force does it take to pierce the skull? I actually Googled that, and I felt like a psycho. Like, how do you crush a skull? How much force does it take to crush a skull? It's okay, though, because the computer belongs to the church. So that might get, like, FBI might be coming in, like, confiscating our computer. But um, I had to look it up. I didn't know these things. But one thing that I did find is that the weakest part of the skull is right on the side. It's actually called the terion. As we show, we have a we have a slide here that points out the terion. And so what this is is your skull, um, a lot of people don't know this, but your skull is not one solid bone. Your, your skull is comprised of a bunch of different plates. The reason is, um, well, it's for your mom, really, that your skull can kind of collapse, and that helps with birth. Um, but um, there's four different bones that come together here, and where the bones meet together, that's called a suture. And so there's three suture lines that meet right at that point of the skull called the terion. So I did not think that this was a coincidence, but the weakest part of the skull was what was exposed here as she was able to drive this tent peg through his skull all the way into the ground. So when I'm hammering things, um, I, like, I'm talking about fight like a girl, but I hammer like a girl. And so when I hammer things, it's like this. So you can't do that if you're trying to murder somebody. You've got to be like one tent peg. You've got one blow to make this happen. And she was able to do that. And the Bible even says that it went all the way through the skull. That's both sides of the skull, through the, the brain, the gray matter, into the ground. Um, I'm getting really excited about the murder part of this story. It's really uh, alarming to me. Um, so God set her up for success by having the size of his skull exposed with the weakest part. Obviously, he's not a back sleeper. He's not a belly sleeper. Uh, he had his temple exposed right there for her. So that happens for us as well. we'll God will tell us to do scary things, and we don't really know. Like, she, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that she didn't know that that was the weakest part of the skull. But that was what was up, right? So God knows. God created us. And so he sets you up for success, even when he asks you to do the scary things. You just got to get the tent peg ready and get your best swing in, um, in there, and you can drive that down into the ground. So she um, also shows us that girls know how to fight. So that's why I want to talk to you guys today about fighting like a girl, because this isn't a gender thing. This is an availability thing, that you guys can all fight like a girl. 
the way that I win fights in our home. I don't want you guys to think that we are a perfect couple. Um, he drinks my water. I win our fights. And so what happens is that I win our fights by Google. So we'll be arguing about things. And our, like, the things we fight about are just stupid. So I asked him the other night. I was like, okay, what's, like, the last, like, three things, two things that we Googled um, to settle a debate? Um, one was Snoop Dogg's real name, which he actually, I did lose that one. Um, and the second was Fritos. I'm going to blow your mind here. This has nothing to do with it. But Fritos, are Fritos a chip or what? So I said, no, Fritos aren't a chip um, because, like, potato chips are chips. And he said, well, what is a Frito? I said, that's a corn chip. Because I don't know it's a corn chip. So what are Doritos? Well, Doritos are chips. What are tortilla chips? Like, those are chips. But Doritos are kind of their own thing. So this, these are the things that we Google. And I just want you to, like, have a little insider information to what our marriage looks like. Um, so what grit actually is, this is really good. If you guys are taking notes, this is something that you definitely want to take down. Grit is the gap between your gift and your goal. So both of these girls had gifts. Uh, JL knew how to work a tent peg. Deborah was willing to go to battle. She had leadership gifts. And the goal was both something that God set out for them. But there's a gap there, right? So you have this skill set, and you haven't yet reached your goal. And what does it take to get there is grit. Okay, so there are things that are happening in our life that we know that we've got a goal, that God has told us to do something, and we're not quite sure how to get there. And what it's going to take is grit. These girls both had a million reasons why they didn't have to pursue what God had told them to do. J.L. was out there alone in the hillside. She was hard. She was scared, I'm sure. What if, what if he woke up? What if this, like, one blow that I have doesn't do it? But what it took was grit. She didn't listen to any of those lies that she had been told that she couldn't do it, that she wasn't good enough. It was grit that took her to the next place, and that took her to her goal. Deborah was the only one doing this job. She was the only judge and prophetess in Israel at the time. She could have said, I have to do it all. I'm busy. Grit. It's not my job. I'm the minority. This is scary. Grit. I could get hurt here. I could get killed. What happens if I'm taken out of the scene? What's going to happen to the next leader? Grit. She didn't listen to any of these things that came into our into her mind. She had grit that powered her through. And so do you guys. You have grit inside you that you just need to tap into and not think about the what if and just plow through using your gifts to get to your goal. Thank you. <laughs> so do you want to be popular or do you want to be influential? Deborah wanted to be influential. There's a difference here between, pop, be, between being popular and being influential. When you're popular, you follow the masses, and you tell them what they want to hear. When you're influential, you stand on truth apart from the crowd. And so Deborah was willing to tell the Israelites when they messed up. She was willing to tell them when it's time to go to battle. She was willing so much to do this that she would go herself into battle. That is grit. These women also possess, which you possess, is virtue. Judges 4, 9. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Now scholars, the people that didn't drop out of Bible college, said that they believe that Deborah thought that this would be her, because there's no other female going into battle, so how would victory go to a woman who's not in battle, right? So she tells Barak, that's fine, but the victory's not going to be yours going to be mine, right? 
But in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 24, she goes on, Deborah goes on to sing about Jael, and she said, Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. May she be blessed among all women who live in tents. She was a woman who was celebrating other women. She desired for her continued success. When she said, may she be blessed, this is like a continuing verb. She wants blessings to continue to come to jail, even though she came in second place, right? She thought the victory was going to be given to her, but it didn't come to her. It came to jail. Success is not success without a successor. So for us here at The Refuge, that is why we are so big on raising up our leaders to raise up under other leaders under them. Because that's what we're doing is we're leaving a legacy. And so leaders who raise leaders, you can't be successful without a successor. So if there's nobody to carry the torch after you, it doesn't matter what you've done because it's going to be snuffed out when you're done. Opinions are easy to make, quick to change, hard to clean up, and we're careless in spreading ours around. So when we talk about women celebrating other women, how many know that women can be kind of wenchy, right? Like we're not the nicest breed of people. And so we can kind of like be a little snarky about other women or if somebody else is successful and you thought that that success was yours, maybe you were more deserving. Maybe you honestly did have it coming and it went to the other woman. So what do we do? We have our opinions and then we go and share our opinions with our friends. And then what happens most times is we realize that she wasn't such a bad girl after all, and we were kind of a jerk, and we shouldn't have said that. So that really resonated with me. That's not an original quote from me, um, but it's so good. Opinions are easy to make, quick to change, and hard to clean up, and we're careless in spreading ours around. So I want to tell you about a time that I was careless in spreading my opinion around. And this is when, you know, I kind of laid some groundwork, and I told you about my childhood, having the same small circle of friends. Um, The school that I grew up in was the same 12 kids. Um, so we were more like siblings than we were um, peers in school. And so there was a girl in our school that she had beautiful curly hair. Like now as an adult, I'm like, gosh, I, like I spend time curling my hair. This girl like woke up and like she woke up like this. So she has this amazing hair and she had bangs because it was 1990 and we all had bangs. And so I would make fun of her bangs and I kind of would um, had a little, um, like a, a ringleader, I guess you'd say, uh, of, of other little girls that would make fun of her bangs. So I want to show you what it looks like. The woman who is making fun of other people's bangs, um, this is me as a child. And so the bangs weren't my best feature. Um, the top left is my favorite photo. That looks like my job at TGI Fridays, minus like all the flair on my vest. But um, there's some, the top right is what I would say. That was like the quintessential bang photo. So I can't take the blame for these bangs. I could actually blame my mom for the bangs. Um, and also leaving the top right photo, leaving the scissors in the hand of my brother. So this was the girl that was making fun of somebody else's bangs. And so how often, we can take those photos down now. That's awesome. Thank you. How often are we making fun of somebody else for something that's already happening with us, within us? We're, we're tearing people down. We're talking bad about them. But what we're actually doing is deflecting what's going on within us and within our own hearts. You don't know what you look like when you're speaking in the spirit. So we know that there are, there's a spiritual world around us that we can't see. And so when you're speaking, you are actually speaking fire. You are speaking words that separate the light and the darkness. And so that's why we say, like, speak life into people. There are ways that you can say things in a life-giving way, even when it's something that you need to, you know, do some constructive criticism. There's 
a difference between having a critical eye and a critical heart. And so when you speak to somebody um, with out of your critical eye, you're building them up and you're talking in a life-giving way. Um, but when you have a critical heart and you come at somebody with that, you tear them down. Um, and, and in the spiritual world, if we could just see what our words actually look like and do um, to the souls of other people, I feel like we would be a lot more careful with our words. I'm a private person by nature. Um, it's not because I, you know, I, I don't want to share things. It's just kind of how um, I'm wired. And so I know that when, when there are spiritual things happening in my life, when there are things that I need prayer for, you know, I just feel like it's me and God and, like, you know, I'll let my husband in sometimes. And, like, that's it. But, like, that's, I've got a crew here. And so sometimes the breakthrough is not going to come to you unless you're willing to go shoulder to shoulder with somebody and share that burden because the burden is too hard for us to bear on our own. We're tired and we're weak, and we just need somebody to come alongside us to not to fight for us, but to fight with us. So that's why we've got every week we have our prayer team at the front, not because you can't do it on your own, but because you shouldn't do it on your own. The breakthrough will come when you are praying together, when we are united. It says in the Bible that we're two or three are gathered in his name, that he is there. And so I do want to challenge you guys so much to utilize this prayer team. Because what you guys see happening is somebody standing here. But what you don't know what's happening is what's happening in the spiritual world. When they're speaking truth over you, when they're dividing light and darkness, your silence is your agreement to the lies that the enemy whispers to you. So when you speak out against those lies, when you talk to somebody and tell them what's going on for you, and they speak out against those lies, you're disagreeing with the enemy, and you're standing your foot on solid ground and refusing to give him a foothold. Deborah didn't need this victory. You, would be, you won't be distracted by comparison when you are captivated by purpose. This is the big idea for today that I want you to get. You will not be distracted by comparison when you are captivated by your purpose. Deborah won so much more by coming in second place, by not being the one that the victory came to, um, like J.L. There's a verse in Proverbs 25, 27. This is the message. I really hate the first part of this verse, but since it's in the Bible, I kind of have to say the whole verse. Um, and it's, it's smart, not smart to stuff yourself with sweets, so we're skipping over that. That's not our message today. But the second half is, nor is glory piled on glory good for you. What God is doing in you is sometimes greater than what he's going to do through you. So he's got to do the work within you. And sometimes that work comes through you losing and coming in second place. When I was in high school, I went to a, a really large high school. And um, I had enough credits to graduate high school um, early, but my high school didn't do that. So my senior year, it was all art for me. I took all art classes. I was really considering going into school for art. Um, and it came time for superlatives. And somebody told me, like, I class of, like, almost 600. They're like, hey, you were nominated as most artistic. And I was like, oh, God, that's crazy. Like, that's not something you campaign for. I, I was, honestly, I was unknown in high school. Like, some people thrive, some survive. I just put my head down to survive high school. And so I was nominated as most artistic. And I kind of was like, oh, maybe, maybe I can do this. Maybe I will go to art school. And then it came out. Um, the winner was my best friend. And at the time, and I was kind of like, I felt a little deflated, and that loss to me actually confirmed in my mind that art school wasn't where I wanted to go, because I knew that I struggle so much with comparison that my whole college career would be comparing my art to somebody else's art and not feeling worthy enough. 
so what happened was I ended up going to Bible college, which worked out okay for me, um, because that's where I ended up meeting my husband. Uh, Judges 4.11 says, Now Heber the Kenite, the descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kadesh. Jael knew who the real enemy was here. What you guys might not have caught through that verse is that um, Heber was a Kenite, but he had moved away from the other members of his tribe. So being a descendant of Moses, they were allies, but he had switched sides, right? He started to back for the other team. And so this is why Sisera knew that it would be safe to run to their tent. So J.L. could have been so caught up in, like, my husband doesn't believe like me. My husband doesn't follow God. Now he's actually on the other side, and he's working with the Canaanites. But that was not who her enemy was. She knew who her enemy was. Ephesians 6, 12 says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. The Greek word here for fight is kale, which means hand-to-hand combat. You can't win a battle that you refuse to fight. It has to be a battle that you fight. We can't fight your battle for you. We will go to battle with you. But hand-to-hand combat is one-on-one. We are here to pray for you. We're here to pray for strength and to lift your arms when they feel tired and you can't hold them up anymore. We're here to encourage you and to support you. But the fight is yours. Victory belongs to God. What we are called to do is to be obedient. The outcome is God's responsibility. So what you need to do is what we see in Judges 5.21. March on with courage, my soul. March on, march on. There are more battles to come. The the fight is going to continue. And so what we need to do is shoulder the burden with one another and know who the real enemy is. It's not the person who doesn't agree with you. It's not the person who doesn't line up with your beliefs. But we know who our enemy is. And you need to be willing to nail your enemy to the ground and just walk away. What is it that you need to nail to the ground today? What is it that you need a victory over? She said it perfectly. We fight the battle here but the victory is already ours because of what Jesus has done. And I want you to know this morning that there is only one war that we all battle that matters, and that's the war of sin. That's the battle, that's the war that Jesus came to this earth to fight for us. So because he's already fought the battle and he's already won, it's the easiest victory we have. But the problem is that sin is what we face and we have to fight to 
temptation to give in. But it's one. And we somehow always find ourselves in that cycle. So this morning, I want you to know that your greatest battle that you face, it's already been won for you. All you have to do is to acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God, that He came to this earth, that He died on the cross, that He went to the tomb, and that He didn't stay there, and that three days later, He came back to overcome the sin that we face every day. And when we give our hearts over to Jesus, He gives us victory. That is why this church exists. Because the war on sin is real, and we all face it, and we all need each other to help us fight it. The fact of the matter is, sometimes sin has a name. Sometimes that sin has a name like pornography, pride, lust. sometimes we can call those sins out. But the fact of the matter is, is that we all face sin. The Bible says that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then it goes on and it says, but the, and, or, and, and it says that the, the, the wages of sin is death. So there's a price to be paid for the sin that we all face. But then that verse goes on and says, but the gift of This victory is a gift that God is offering all of us today. So, I want to wrap this up by talking about two different things. Number one, how many of you here today need to first overcome the greatest battle that we all face? The battle of sin. How many of you need to come and acknowledge Jesus as your Lord? The second one is, what battle are you facing that you need to nail to the ground? And you need to say, you know what? I'm not going to struggle with this anymore. I'm going to nail it to the ground. I'm going to walk away. Not because of me, but because of Jesus in me. So do me a favor. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? As we we think about those two questions, my my friends are coming up, up front for prayer. If there's anything that you face today, they want to pray with you.